Welcome to Archimedes, the evidence-based podcast of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood, where we take the principles of evidence-based medicine and apply them to paediatrics and child health. What are those principles? I hear you wondering, scratching the back of your brain. Well, the idea is that you have an uncertainty that leads you to generate a clinical question. You then go away and you search the published evidence for the best quality science to answer that question. You appraise it, you look for its strengths and its weaknesses, and you synthesize all of that information together in order to come up with something that can apply in practice and the clinical bottom lines that come out of our Archimedes summaries are that application. As a trainee or as anybody that's carrying on practicing medicine, you can also use the opportunity to assess your own performance in some way and use that as a way of continually developing and learning more about the world. In our podcast, what we always do is a little bit about the practice of evidence-based medicine as well, not just the topics and areas of interest that people have written in. And so we'll start with something that is extremely summary and might have relevance to those of you who like tennis. When I was younger, we always had to eat strawberries by washing them thoroughly first, cutting off the green top and then slicing them in half in case that there was a slug that had eaten its way inside. This was because when my mum was little, she'd eaten a strawberry with a hidden slug inside it. I worked out after two decades on this planet, this was probably overkill and that most slugs would leave an enormous great hole in the strawberries they munched through. And it turned out that the slug my mum had eaten was actually a near miss than a consumption and she was very little at the time and the strawberry came from the patch in the back garden directly out of it. And other things in the world are sort of like my strawberry experience. We have many, many times settled so deeply into our ways of knowing something and security in in how things are done round here that we never actually question them. We know that children with bad infections have high heart rates. We therefore need to hospitalise children with high heart rates in case they have bad infections. We know that Beckwith-Wiedemann is associated with Wilms tumour. We know that ultrasounds spot Wilms's earlier than symptoms do. So we should do lots of tummy scans. A baby once had undiagnosed haemophilia. And so we need to do clotting screens before we do a lumbar puncture on any, any baby. It's by pumping into people who live outside of the world that we're enmeshed in, either from other places or for other specialities, that I find my strawberries jostled. I long for the days where we can go back to meeting in conference bars and coffee spaces just to chat about stuff and find out about people's lives and find out about what we don't know. Until that happens, let's take the opportunities of diversity in the world to question what we do and then inquire about why we actually do it. Now, the first of our areas does cover directly one of those questions. The question that is being asked is from uh, Colin McGrath and Michael Boyle from the Rotunda Hospital in Dublin, and they ask the question, does Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome require intensive Wilms tumour surveillance? The scenario is a baby admitted to the neonatal intensive care who has a a clinical picture consistent with Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome, and then later is confirmed on genetic analysis to have an IC2 hypomethylation defect. Now, I have to say that I uh, wasn't sure what that meant, and that's a 
one of the genetic variations that makes up Wetherspoon syndrome. The 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 mum read online saw that Wetherspoon was associated with tumour development and so would need screening, but the neonatologist assured her that no imaging was required. Is this true? Can you get away without Wilms tumour screening for kids with Wetherspoon syndrome? So they went away, the authors, and they looked in a couple of databases, didn't find any systematic reviews, pulled uh, 400 or so potential hits and got down to four relevant articles that were related to this question. Now, in the background of this, Beckwith-Fiedemann, we do know when you put all of that syndrome together, does carry an excess burden of cancer in childhood compared to the general population. There are growth regulators in the 11p15.5 region, which is what they've said. I have to say I've never seen an 11p15.5 in myself. Um, and, and that's partly why you get these overgrowth syndromes. And, and all of these things also then lead to, to the, to the tumours and hepatoblastoma, Wilms tumour being the majority of those, but also slightly increased rates of the rare cancers, some of them ganglioneuroblastomas, astrocytomas and the like. Now, the, the syndrome of Beckwith-Wiedemann is highly variable phenotypically, and that's reflected genetically, and there are many, many different defects that make them up. What the studies did was they pulled different sort of groups of BWS patients who had all been genetically characterized and pulled them together, looking to see what was the cancer risk of the different genetic subtypes. Now, it does confirm that overall they are at increased risk, but they are highly related to the genetic type. So, the IC1 gain of methylation, so hypermethylation, extramethylation in the IC1 area is associated with the greatest risk of Wilms tumour. Somewhere around 25% will have a Wilms tumour. Those with uniparental disomy were around about the 13-15% level. Those with the IC2 reduced methylation, loss of methylation, hypomethylation, had a Wilms tumour rate of only about 0.1%. Now, this is low. This is really quite low, but it is higher than the general population. And so, is there a need to screen this group or not? 0.1%. That's, that's, that's one in a thousand. That's a hell of a lot of screening to do that. And an international guideline body actually pulled all this information together and, and felt that, that routine surveillance screening wasn't really warranted for this group of patients. Of course, if there are any symptoms, if there are any signs, if there's any suggestion that someone is developing a Wilms tumour, then they absolutely should be scanned. It, it's not that we shouldn't ever put an ultrasound probe, but routine surveillance is not necessary in this group. Getting that information across is an enormous challenge because I think partly of the, the information that's out there in the world, because of the challenges that exist in negotiating social media and the subtleties of things and the fact that this is information that is emerging and going forwards and developing in time. This is the key to evidence-based practice, really. It's to, it's to have a thing that you know the answer to, but to constantly question, is that still the answer? Is that still the truth? The next question 
leaps from a completely different setting and is all about mandatory training. Well, not quite, but the question is, how frequently should paediatric CPR skills be taught? And this is CPR in the setting of, obviously, full recitation training and so on. But this is from uh, Melissa Mulholland, Sean Malloy, Tricia Coulter, Dara O'Donoghue, Thomas Burke and Andrew Thompson, who are all at the Royal Belfast Hospital in Belfast. They asked the question as education and sim fellows and groups around, how often should we be doing resource training in paediatrics in order to get optimum retention of those skills? They went away and they looked in the medical literature to see if there was training stuff that was in there. 159 potential hits came up. 31 were dragged down in detail and then 11 pulled out for full text review. Going through that and then chasing down references off the back end of that came up to uh, seven papers that really looked to answer this question in different aspects as they drew them forwards. So what the papers have done is they've looked to see how well people have hit the sort of the 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 the, the resource council level of goodness on variations around that around the world, but, but minimal variations really, and they've looked to see at what about frequency. So how often do we do this training, and looked about how we do the training to some extent. So in frequency, a study that did every single month doing the training found that skills were better than in other intervals. Others randomised between 3, 6 and 12 monthly training, relatively small but found no difference between those. Another one found that if you did 3 or 6 monthly training it was better and skills were retained more than in annual training. Of note, when people turn up for their annual training who are all qualified, they're all competent, they're all still within their sort of time period, only around 5 to 30% of them actually on the first go got it right, which is slightly concerning that annual isn't enough. On the other side of that, what they'd have noticed is that the more often you ask people to attend, the lower and lower proportion of people actually do attend over that time. So there has to be a balance struck somewhere. How do you do the training to make it more effective? Well, giving feedback on skills at the time, either with the devices that give them immediately or with uh, the trainers giving feedback about your, your skills is certainly better than just telling people how to do it and getting on with it. And it looks like actually having a trainer there rather than just having the automated voice telling you whether you've done it right or not is better um, than making people keep these going forwards. However, as you can hear from this sort of summary, the studies are not entirely the same. They're a little bit heterogeneous. They have different sorts of mannequins and groups and training protocols that are put together. There's, there's something to be struck within this balance around service release and requirement as well. The, the authors of this Education Sim Fellows are suggesting that three monthly is probably the optimal re, uh, balance between retention of skills and, uh, and impact upon service. It might be that more than annual is necessary. Maybe I would argue perhaps maybe we need it at the start of every job and that would be improving things forwards and I appreciate that that's my point of view from the privileged position of having a job that can start carry on for ages and not have to change every six months.
evidence-based medicine is about applying the best evidence you've got to the situation you're in within the limits of the resources you have available and that in itself is a challenge a challenge that we're all going to face all the time so the archimedes have come in from all over the world you happen to have had two from wildly different points of view of oncology and training today they can be about anything check our instructions to authors on the website get in touch make sure it's not in process or has been done very very recently and we can give you some supportive editorial assistance as you make your way through the process Please do feel free to feed back on the podcast or on the Archimedes section and let us know at the archives what you think we are doing well and what you think we could be doing better. Until next month, we'll speak to you then. Bye.